About three weeks after Laura Morris disappeared from the Greenfield, Indiana home of Steve and Trudy Snedeker, a business associate of Snedeker's went missing. From the police report. Paul Anthony, a.k.a. Tony Lambert, white male, brown eyes, brown hair, 5'11", 180 pounds, left New Orleans, reference and oil deal. Checked into Maison Dupree Motel. Mr. Lambert called his wife Wednesday and Thursday. Last seen by someone at the hotel, leave with a lady in a red T-bird. Lambert's car was left at the hotel parking lot. Contact Missing Persons Bureau Ray Himmel with New Orleans PD with this information. Tony Lambert and an associate named Tony McCullough, heretofore called the Tonys, together had tried to buy Steve Snedeker's oil business in the summer of 1981, but the financing fell through. Police would later learn that that financing fell through due to Steve Snedeker's refusal to open up his books for the bank in order to lend the money. When New Orleans PD approached Steve Snedeker, he told them that he did fly to New Orleans and he met with Tony Lambert for about 30 minutes. But Tony told him he didn't have anything to do with his daughter going missing. Steve Snedeker told police that Tony was upset when he realized that he had been lured there under false pretenses. Now, none of this corresponds with what Tony Lambert was telling his wife, Bonnie, who had been speaking with him daily since he left Indiana on September 1st to drive to New Orleans. She wrote out three pages documenting all contacts with her husband, and then she subsequently turned that over to police. Tuesday, September 1st, Tony Lambert left Indianapolis by car, a red 1981 Corvette with a T-top, around 10 a.m. en route to New Orleans. He arrived there on Wednesday, September 2nd, about 8 a.m. He called me to let me know he arrived. He also called me previously around 5 a.m. to let me know he was in Jackson, Mississippi for a short break. At 8 a.m., he called from the Maison Dupree Hotel in New Orleans and said he would be staying there Wednesday night. Steve Snedeker met with him about 11 a.m. that morning concerning an oil deal and, to my knowledge, spend the night at the same hotel. Tony called me again Wednesday evening, saying that all sounded good on the deal. Steve was going to advance him $8,000, which he would wire to our account at Wainwright Bank, so I could catch up on bills. We talked about me flying down, as he missed me so much already. He called me again on Tuesday morning, the 3rd of September, to tell me that he made plane reservations for me to meet him in New Orleans on Friday at 4.30 p.m. at the airport. He also told me he was leaving for Tampa, Florida on Thursday evening, but would be flying back Friday afternoon in Steve Snedeker's private plane. He told me to stay by the phone Thursday evening and he would call in case there were any changes. I never heard back from him. Thursday evening, his associate, Tony McCullough, was to have received a call from Steve Snedeker about when to leave Indianapolis with trucks headed for New Orleans. He never received a call. By Friday, I had not received a call from Tony by the time it was time to go to the airport. I felt something was wrong and canceled my flight until Saturday, hoping I would hear from him. I called the airport. My tickets had been prepaid by American Express or Visa. I can't remember which. 
I called the hotel in New Orleans where he said we would be staying and found no reservations or cancellations. Friday night, I called Mrs. Snedeker. She was evasive, but she said she'd get a hold of Steve to get a message to Tony. On Saturday, still no word, so I canceled my flight for Saturday. Tony McCullough contacted state police in Florida and Louisiana regarding plane or car accidents, and the result was negative. He says there was no way that they could be flying in Steve's private plane because it was in Houston. Sunday, I called Mrs. Snedeker again. I got another woman on the phone. She said she would have Miss Snedeker call me. My call was not returned. Also on Sunday, I learned that Tony McCullough drove all day Saturday into the night to arrive at the Maison Dupree Hotel to find my husband's car in the parking garage. He called my husband's friend, Dick Ruther. Dick said he had talked to my husband around 9 p.m. on Thursday in regard to him picking up his car if he couldn't leave it at the hotel. He never mentioned anything to them about me flying down, only that he was heading for Tampa and would be back on Thursday. On Monday, Judy McCullough, Tony McCullough's wife, and I went to Greenfield to try to talk to Mrs. Snedeker. No one answered the door, so we went to a public phone and we called. A woman answered and said she was the answering service. I left a message for Mrs. Snedeker to call me because my husband's father was in serious condition and I needed to talk to him. She never called me back. On Tuesday, Tony McCullough called at noon saying that he was outside New Orleans after having driven from Houston. He said that Steve Snedeker contacted him in Houston and that he was in Tampa Steve said that my husband, Tony Lambert, was not with him, and he last talked with him on Thursday evening. He told Tony McCullough that he had decided not to advance my husband the $8,000, and that he thought my husband had gone to his friend, Pascal Townsend's, in Dulce, Louisiana, to see if he could get some money from him. Steve Snedeker claims he had no further contact with my husband, and he left for Tampa alone. He said he's been there ever since. I called Mr. Townsend to find out that my husband never even contacted him. Steve Snedeker also told Tony McCullough to drive back to Indianapolis and he would be there in two days. And they would drive the trucks back down to New Orleans or maybe Houston, I can't remember. I called the Maison Dupree parking attendant to find out that my husband's car is still there. No reservations were made for him to return. You can really get a sense in that narration of her panic. Days and days of not hearing from her husband after he had clearly been keeping her in the loop as far as his whereabouts. In Tony Lambert's missing person file, I found transcripts of a couple recorded phone conversations. One is obviously a call between Bonnie and someone from law enforcement. The second is a call between her and Tony McCullough. They are commiserating about what had happened up to that point. The following are audio recreations of those calls. Let's start with the call from police. I'm not thinking real clearly, so you're going to have to help me. I've got many days of this in my mind, and I've tried to keep notes and have other people help me remember things. Where do you want me to start? When's the last time you've seen or heard from him? On Thursday, Thursday morning. 
Alright, number one, we're going to have to ask this question sooner or later, and it's going to be asked again a number of times. Were you and him having any kind of domestic problems whatsoever? No. Nothing at all. Nothing. Kissed you goodbye and away he went? Uh-huh. He left Tuesday on September 1st around 10 in the morning. Do you know what flight he left on or anything? He didn't fly. He drove to New Orleans. He arrived there around 8 in the morning. He called to tell me that he arrived. So you talked to him on the phone? Yeah, he'd just been to the Maison Dupree Hotel. As far as you know, he drove there by himself? Uh-huh. Okay, when you talked to him on the phone, you had no indication? I mean, he didn't mention anything suspicious or anything? Oh, yeah, no, every, everything was fine. He claimed that he had a meeting with Steve. He had a meeting with Steve. Did you talk to him after that meeting? Uh-huh. And you say Steve is the father of this daughter, of this gal that's missing in Greenfield. How come you didn't meet with him up here? I don't know. And this meeting was in reference to what? See, what this is, it's waste oil that they pump out and then they sell it to different places. Used oil out of garages and places? Anywhere that they dump waste oil. There's places along the Gulf. They pump the oil out and, I don't know, well... That's the way I understand it, anyway. How long has he been in it? He just got into it. Now, this girl that lives in Greenfield, she's been missing for, what, a week now? Since August. August, so almost a month she's been missing. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, another strange thing. Wait a minute now, is she living with her mother and father, or living with her mother and the father is living another place? I don't know, she was kidnapped from her mother's home, and her mother was in the bedroom, and she was in the living room. Okay, where was her father? Does he live there? When he's in town, I suppose he does. It's just kind of a surprise to me that he'd be gone out of town, you know, with everything that's going on with his daughter right now. Yeah, and the funny thing is, I remember when we came in and got my gun permit. The Snedegers were in the process of trying to buy this oil refinery. Your husband and who? Tony McCullough. That's been back in May now. They were trying to buy an oil refinery? In Green... No, in Greenfield. No, they were trying... All right, he had an oil business in Greenfield, Indiana, and we were trying to buy that because Steve wanted to get out of that and go into other things, and they were trying to come up with the money, and he sold it to someone else. And then he told Tony that he had other things in parts of the country that, you know, he could turn them onto a deal or something and this and that. But then he would just disappear, and they would hear nothing from him for weeks. And then they'd maybe get a call that he'd meet with them or something, and they'd finally get a hold of him, and Steve gives him some wishy-washy answer saying that everything's going fine and I'll get a hold of you. But then no one hears from him again. So then later on, before this whole kidnapping thing, they had both basically decided that if Steve ever did call, that they wouldn't want anything to do with him because they felt that he was not trustworthy, that they can't depend on his word, and they were fed up with waiting. Now this was going on back, apparently, back in July, is that right? Uh Uh-huh. But they decided not to... Well, he did call them, which seemed very strange at the time he called. We didn't know this, but it was only two days after this girl was kidnapped. He called both these guys, Tony and Tony, and he told them he had a deal for them and he wanted to meet them. And they were tied up for money because things had been going kind of bad for everybody, and so they both agreed to meet him. Well, then they find out that they had this meeting with him days after his daughter had been kidnapped. They weren't aware of any of this. He didn't mention nothing about this to them. It seemed even stranger after we found out that she'd been kidnapped and he didn't even mention it. And then he was wanting them to go to, well, one of them to go to Texas and the other one to go to Louisiana to work on the oil drills. And that was right around, I think, the middle of August. 
So they both went because they needed the money. And it seemed like a good deal and everything was supposed to be legitimate. And then around that time, I remember there was talk about the girl. He led the guys to believe, I think, that she had just run off with her ex-husband or something. And he said he wasn't concerned about her. But when you read the papers, you know, that's not the way it looks, right? So anyhow, it never got to the point where they were going to have this meeting. Wait, what about, what about the other Tony? He had met with him. He's the one that was supposed to go to Houston. Did Steve meet with Tony McCullough in Houston? Tony's flown to Houston. He's supposed to have heard from Steve last Thursday, but he never heard anything until today. So he was going to wait, but then Steve called and told him to go back to Indianapolis, and then he was heading back, and he'd be back in the office in two days. Now, wait a minute. I'm getting confused here. When did Tony McCullough leave? Did he leave to go down to Houston and meet with Steve? Yeah, we all did. Did you talk with Snedeker? No, I haven't. You haven't heard from him at all? No, I have not. I hear from Tony McCullough. He calls all the time. Have you heard from him today? Yeah. And where's he at? Last we spoke, he was right outside New Orleans. Oh, he's down there too? I told him I thought he ought to be back in Indianapolis because I thought his life was in danger. I just I have that feeling. And he said, oh, I don't think so. And I said, Tony, there is something wrong. Has he seen your husband? No, and my husband was supposed to go with Snedeker to Tampa and return to New Orleans on Friday, and then I was supposed to meet him in New Orleans on Friday. Steve said my husband didn't go to Tampa with him. He decided not to. What do you call it when you give money, upfront money? Because we had some bills that need to be paid. It's like a loan or something, only it's taken out. Anyway, he told Tony McCullough he had not given my husband the money. Did he tell Tony McCullough that he hadn't even seen your husband? Not since Thursday night. But he did see him Thursday night. Yeah. They had their meeting. Yeah. Now, did you talk to your husband after that? No, he never called. See, that was the night he was supposed to call me, and he never called. So you haven't talked to him since he had that meeting Thursday afternoon with Snedeker. Right. I talked to him Wednesday night, and then Thursday morning. And that's when he told me about my plane reservations. To come in on Friday, and that he'd gotten the deal with Steve, and Steve was going to advance him. That's the word, advance. Steve was going to advance him the $8,000 that would be wired into our account so we could catch up on bills because we were behind and I'd be able to live on it until the money started coming in. And also he was going to open up an account there. They were going to deposit $40,000 to begin the business. So he told you that's what was going to happen? That's what was going to happen. When I talked to him Thursday morning, he told me Thursday morning to stay home that night. He'd call me if there was any change. Otherwise, I could assume everything was okay and they'd call me regardless, one way or the other, so that I'd know whether to get on the plane Friday, and the ticket was paid for. So we got the tickets and paid for them down there. Did he have money with him to do that when he left? No, he charged the ticket on my credit card, and I didn't hear from him all Thursday, and then Friday, and then Saturday rolled around, and I still hadn't heard anything. Did he take a lot of stuff with him? No, he took very little, jeans, work boots, no suits, just basically work clothes. Now, Tony McCullough, he was in New Orleans Sunday. When did he leave Indianapolis the first time? Um, Sunday afternoon at 3, he would have left. Oh, wait, Saturday night, and he drove all night. And he called you then? Yeah, he's been calling me regularly. He left and went to Houston, even though he had not heard from Steve. He drove his Corvette. He's got one, too. And en route to Houston, he went by New Orleans to check at the hotel, and he found Tony's car there. And then he went on to Houston, even though he hadn't heard from Steve. Then he calls me and tells me that he heard from Steve. And Steve called him there, I guess in Houston, and he said that he was in Tampa, and that Tony wasn't with him, and the last time he saw him was Thursday evening. 
The next conversation was between Bonnie Lambert and Tony McCullough on September 8th, one week after she last saw her husband. They saw him on Wednesday? Yeah. But that's the last time they saw him? No, they saw him again on Thursday. Thursday evening? Yeah. Because, see, I talked to him Thursday morning. Oh, did you? And that's the last time I heard from him. He was supposed to call me back Thursday night. Buck says that it was right around dusk when they saw him the last time, Thursday. And he says when they left, he really didn't seem to be too mad or anything, but... Well, what was the reason that the deal got canceled? Did you ever hear why he didn't get the job or whatever? Well, according to what Buck is telling me, it's that, you know... And here, I'm, I'm getting it secondhand because of the back and forth, but... Anyway, according to Buck, Steve never said that he would give Tony 8000 up front. According to Buck? Yeah, he said that they would put like twenty-five or 30000 in the bank to get the business started, you know, to buy tires and gas and whatever else they needed, but he didn't agree to 8000 up front. When Tony approached him for the upfront money, Steve just told him he didn't do that. Hmm. When he called me, he said that he'd be wiring the money up and it was already agreed on. That's what I don't understand. Well, what Steve might have done was agree to it on Wednesday and then changed his mind on Thursday and backed out. That wouldn't surprise me a whole lot. What Steve had to say about it. Has he got any ideas what could have happened to Tony or where he could have gone other than fish camp? Because I called down there and nobody's seen him. No, he had no further ideas. His car is still at that hotel. It's never been moved? Uh Uh-uh. So I'm sending the leasing company out, you know, because I can't make the payments on it. What are you going to do with the Toyota and the truck? I'm losing all of them, except for Michael's truck. But Jenny's and Marty's and mine, they're picking them up. Because I have no way, I mean, I don't I don't have any money. So you can't very well keep them when you don't have any money, right? I know the feeling. And we're having to move. I mean, I'm having to move my furniture all over the place. People keeping it for me till I can get on my feet. Yeah, bail out. Yeah, but I, I mean, I haven't been able to find out or do anything with the police. Like, I don't even know how hard they've looked. Mm-hmm. They put out some sort of general bulletin, and that's it. You have to have some kind of proof of foul play for them to even really take any interest. Tony, do you think he was in that bad of a frame of mind that he was, if, you know, the deal fell through, that he would just take off? Maybe for three or four days, but I can't buy two weeks. It's hard for me to bypass three or four days. I can justify that, you know. Anyone might do that under stress. But without calling me? He had other job offers, you know. That's the thing. He had a job offer in Houston and one in Chicago, another one out east, and I just, I don't understand why this would have been such a blow that he couldn't have, you know, tried something else rather than take off. I don't understand. Did they say anything as to what condition he was in that night or Thursday night? Had he been drinking or anything like that? No, no. Buck said that even after Steve turned him down on the 8000 that he really didn't seem to be, you know, too terribly upset about it. I mean, he wasn't happy about it, but he wasn't, you know, grossly upset or anything. He seemed to be in a fairly reasonable frame of mind. Did Steve stay there at the hotel with Tony, do you know? No, they stayed in the Howard Johnson's. So the hotel would have just been registered in Tony's name? Right. I asked the hotel about that, and they never did show a Tony Lambert being registered there. Wait, no. I checked it two or three nights ago and found out that he was registered there from Wednesday through Friday. He had been checked out on Friday. I had a room number to call him at, and I called him at that number. Oh, is that right? Was he registered under Tony Lambert or Bill Lambert? 
Paul, probably. It would have been under Paul because of the credit card. It would have said Paul Anthony Lambert on the card. I was kind of hoping I could get back down there and do some nosing around. Yeah, I didn't know if you'd be home or where you'd be, but listen, what I'll do, um, do you want me to just send you this check? I don't even know if I have your address. I think you can probably cash it. Oh, I don't, I don't think so. It's to T&T Oil. That's how it's made out. I don't have, you know, I don't, I don't think they'd cash it for me. All right, then. Yeah, send her down. Route 6, Box 640. The zip is 47362. It's in Newcastle. Okay. I'll try to get that in the mail tomorrow. And, Tony, if you hear anything or find out anything, let me know, okay? The Buck mentioned in that recording was Walter Buck Estes. And he was described to me as Steve Snedeker's best friend. I reached out to one of Buck's daughters, and she places Buck as having met Steve around 1979 or 80. So only about two years before Laura went missing. It was right around 79, 80, I think. He just appeared one day. Really? Dad, Dad had a pilot's license. Mm-hmm. And um, I think maybe they met... Steve collected um, used oil, mm-hmm. and Dad took oil to his place. I think maybe that's how they met. All right. And where did your dad work? He worked at um, Warner Gear in Muncie. And before that, he worked, he retired out of Chrysler. Well, what kind of, did your families have relationships? Were like, you know, did you guys do things? No. Okay. No, Dad had left Mom and remarried a hussy or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I have not heard that word in a while. I like it. I I couldn't think of anything else. (laughs) No, that's a good word. That's perfect. I've got my names for but I'll (laughs) use hussy with you. (laughs) Perfect. I love it. So so there there was no... um, there was no interacting with the Snedeker family and, and you or your family then? It would have just been your father relationship with, with him? Dad brought him over here one time. And what were your impressions and, of him? Oh, I hated him immediately. I had the creeps. Really? Why? He scared me. I don't know. I just had a bad feeling about him. Um, his eyes never stopped moving. Hmm. And that's the only time you ever met him? One other time. And what do you remember about that situation? Same situation. Just brought him over and it was in passing? And then I said, don't bring him back. Well, that's interesting. So, what do you, re- do you have a first-hand um, recollection of when um, Laura went missing? Were you, were you living in the same area at the time? Yes. And so do you remember seeing, like, the newspaper accounts and all that? No, but Dad would tell me, and he was obsessed with trying to find her. Well, what do you remember him telling you? I remember him telling me he thought that Laura was murdered by somebody that Steve had done wrong. Hmm. Did he say how he had done wrong? Yeah, business deal. Could have been drugs. See, Dad had his pilot's license, 
and Steve was wanting him to fly to Mexico. Oh, really? Yeah. Did he ever did he ever do that for him? No. No. Okay. And I know Steve flew, flew Not too. Not to my knowledge. Well, Steve flew too, so he may have done some of that himself. Mm-hmm. Huh. So your first instinct was, or his was rather, that he, it was a bit uh, someone that Steve had done wrong. Why did you assume drug-related? Isn't it always? Well, that's true. That's true. And, and that's what I'm trying to kind of suss out. It, how much was known for sure about um, Steve's involvement with drugs and, and, you know, things like that, what his involvement was? Yeah, I don't know. I just know Dad said he wanted him to, run, to fly drugs. And he said, I won't do it. But they were together and did... I think Dad was fascinated with living on the edge. He went. He was going through... Back then, <laughs> midlife it sounds like, huh? Yeah, midlife. <laughs> All right, that makes sense. So, so he was attracted to Steve for that type of his personality, the sort of bad, yeah, okay. the excitement, living on the edge. Do you know? I had heard stories about, and and the person that had told me this um, was a, a relative of Snedeker, so take that with a grain of salt. But that some of the business they did, and that Buck was aware of some of the business stuff that uh, Snedeker did. For example, he said in the used oil business, they would pick up oil and take it to places and drop it off or whatever, clean it, and then you know recycle it and then and bring it back. And he recalled hearing a story about. Um, Steve bringing an empty truck full of alleged oil, but it was empty, to when Buck worked at Chrysler and then getting paid for so many thousands of gallons when there was really nothing in the truck. Did did you Do you recall any sort of uh, your father discussing or no. anything like that? No. Uh-uh. No? Okay. Because it was just something he had heard. He didn't know, you know how involved Buck was either he that's just all he had heard that he took it from a place and it was so it would have been literally Buck helping him do something at Chrysler when did you say he retired from from Chrysler I don't remember and he was at another job after that though right it went torn and here hmm do you know which job he had when he was friends with Steve or was it both gosh I don't know Hmm. So besides him thinking that whoever killed Laura um, must have been someone that Steve pissed off, which is, uh, you know, that's kind of a no-brainer because, right. yeah, he probably pissed off a lot of people and he hung around uh, a lot yeah. of shady <laughs> characters. Um, is there anything else that you remember your dad saying about the case? Other than Trudy disappeared. Right, and that was after the after Steve Snedeker moved to Florida. And this is when Dad cut ties with Steve. Steve got sick, but Dad thinks Steve killed Trudy and fed her to the alligators down in, like, Louisiana or Texas or somewhere down in there. That's what your dad had said that well tell me this when did he cut ties with him when he le- when he left um to live in florida probably i don't know that these are been... vague these are my vague memories right i don't have a timeline i don't have dates right 
I just know I didn't want any part of it. Right, right. I didn't want any part of Steve. <clears throat> and I told him not to bring him back. And I said, no, I don't like you messing with him either. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I think he still had to be in his life now that I think about it. When um, Once he moved to Florida, which was, you know, in the same year that his daughter what? died because they went to Astor, Florida in 81 um, and then le- lived out there. But years later, they exu- um, exhumed her body. And um, they found her body. Oh yeah, they found her about eight months oh, after. Laura's? Yes, they found they Laura. They found Laura's, yes. 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 So they found a letter that had been put into. Um, her, they the police got wind of a letter that had been put into her casket by. Um, I guess Trudy asked Buck to put it in there in a box with some pictures and stuff. And that once the police had found that out a couple years later, they exhumed it to try to read the letter and it was partially, you know, disintegrated or whatever. But so I thought, wow, that's something very intimate to have someone, you know, they must have been pretty close if she asked him to put that in into the casket. You know what I mean? Yeah, they were kind of inseparable hmm. for a long, for a few years. And you feel like once he realized, once Trudy died, was when you think he he um, separated from him. Yeah. So it was around that time. It, so that would have been near the end. In the, in yeah. The, in the last few years. Yeah. Did they ever find Trudy's body? No. <clears throat> yeah. Or a couple of the business associates, and that's why I wanted to talk to you about because that's I haven't got all the police reports yet, but. Um, so th- right after Laura went missing, the month after, apparently the thought was Steve thought that um, a couple of business associates that had tried to buy his oil company um, uh-huh. had done it. So he went after them. Steve literally went after them. One of them disappeared. I knew he went after somebody. Yeah. But I didn't know who. A few people, actually. But that was the first one that disappeared, okay. and that was in New Orleans. And apparently Buck was with him on that trip because um, I have police transcripts of some a couple conversations with the woman whose husband went missing and she was getting an explanation from the other business associate um saying well buck said this and buck said that and um well buck said steve did this and he was okay with that you know so he, uh, he was getting his information from you know snedeker through buck buck was there at the time when they had this meeting supposedly so he was actually in New Orleans with Steve Snedeker when that happened, when the one guy went missing. But huh. the guy didn't go missing. I don't, I don't know if the guy went missing in New Orleans or not. The, the police, one of the theories is, is that Steve Snedeker took him in his plane over the Gulf of Mexico and dumped him. But obviously there's no proof of that because we don't have a body oh, for him. Oh, Lord. Yeah. There were like three more men that went missing. <clears throat> and so that was the only other place that Buck's name came in that I wanted to ask you about because that's, you know, he was at least there for part of that meeting. But obviously uh, you never heard any any anything from that then about that. No. Hmm. Well, I don't know why I thought your it was your families that were so close, but that's not really what it Did you guys ever live in um where did you live growing up? What town? Spicebone. All right. I don't know why I thought Chillicothe was where um he met him, but I guess that he met Buck. I guess that wasn't it. Somewhere he met him, and I just don't. I you don't have any idea where the two of them. I met. don't. That is so. And, unless it was from like maybe Steve. Maybe Dad was getting oil for Steve. 
out of Chrysler. Could have been. They. I mean, I think, see, what I've been, what people have speculated to me is that as far as the companies, the oil companies, they may have been being used to sort of launder money for the drug stuff, you know, like. Okay. So, um, but I know that he, um, Steve had all the way up until that happened. He was always doing shady deals with shady characters all the way back decades. So mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me if, if that he's, you know, doing whatever he's doing with the drug angle, but he's also doing stuff like I explained to you about, you know, getting paid for oil that he didn't deliver and things like that. Right. So that's where I thought maybe um, Buck came in as far as, you know, because everyone had told me they were best friends. If, if People were under the impression, at least the ones that I've talked to, that Buck knows a lot or knew a lot. Um, I, I think he did, but, you know, after all that, I put that those thoughts and memories behind me. Yeah. I had my dad on my pedestal. Yeah. And, you know, it's not true. <laughs> well, well, but not you, you don't know. No, I mean, oh, knowing something, things. knowing things doesn't necessarily mean he did things, you know. It just means he may have known things or even thought he knew things, you know. So well, they were pretty tight, inseparable. They did everything. And um, I met Trudy just once. And what did you think of her? I thought she was... Well, I'll tell you, I really thought that she was in over her head and that she was so insecure that she was fake. Really? I mean, she wore wigs and lots of heavy makeup and... Hmm. And what... Nails. In what circumstance did you meet her? When the first time they came, Dad brought both of them. Oh, I see. And this was to your house when you were married? Uh-huh. I see. Was it for a party or something, or just pop, pop by to visit? No, just pop by. <clears throat> Interesting. Why do you, what, that's strange that he would have brought them there to, to visit you. Do, did you think it was strange, or it, it wasn't out of the ordinary? Well, he was kind of a new friend. I see. And that they had hit it off right, right away. Hmm. From when they met, I wouldn't, I guess, and I hadn't, I knew all mom and dad's friends, and so dad brought them over to meet me. Yeah. Did you, when, when he, when your father said to you, you said that he had said that he thought Steve fed Trudy to the Gators or something. Um, That's what dad's theory was. But wh- how did he bring that up to you? Like, how was how did that conversation come about? Well, he he usually came over. He came over a lot, and he talked about the ongoing things that had happened. Did he ever seem afraid of Steve? I don't know. He never seemed to be afraid of anything. And when he updated you on what was going on, you know, when he'd come by and tell you bits and pieces or whatever. That, yeah, I'd have to fix some coffee and all that stuff. And yeah. And just and talk. But, and, and when he talked about it, how did he seem? Like, when he was relaying the story, how did, how did what was him, his emotion like? How did he seem to be taking it all? Um, well, he was bothered by it a great deal. And I said, Dad, you need to get away from that guy. He's, you're going to end up dead. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Did he ever worry about that? 
think maybe. Hmm. So I don't think that the friendship ended. I re- I don't know if it was when Steve got cancer. I think. Did he have cancer? He did. He got sick later after Trudy. You know, in 1990, he died. Yeah. Okay. That's probably when it stopped. So I think Trudy disappeared around 1986, and then Steve got sick in 1990. So there was about a four-year period between when she went missing, was never seen again, and then... um, But it sounds like your dad had a very specific theory about what happened. Did he ever talk about, you know, how it went down or who may have helped him or anything like that? No. I wonder why. what made him think, like, alligators in Louisiana. Or Texas. I don't know. Just, he said, I think he took her down there and fed her to the alligators. Because at the time, Steve lived in Florida, so he could feed her to the oh, alligators or maybe there. maybe he took him to Florida. Yeah. Took her to Florida. <laughs> right. We have alligators here, too. That's where I am. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, that, you know, it could be, he maybe he was associating, you know. See, I'm thinking more like New Orleans. And well, that's, somewhere around that's where that other ha- thing happened. That's where the first guy went missing, where Buck was at the, in New Orleans for that meeting. That See, what happened was Steve thought this guy maybe had had some involvement. This was just days after his daughter went missing. For some reason, he got it in his head that this specific guy, these two specific guys that had tried to buy his oil company had done it. So he he makes this plan to lure him to um, New Orleans. I don't know why New Orleans, because the guy also lived in Indiana, so I don't know why. But he lures him to New Orleans under false pretenses, and Buck was there for some of that. I don't know how much of it. And then suddenly the guy well, goes missing. That guilty by association. Well... I don't know how in much. My book. Yeah, but I don't know how. I have no clue what. Nobody knows what happened there. Once no. he was not seen, nobody knows. You know, and by Buck saying alligators in New Orleans, that may, makes me think that um, Lambert's daughter was right because she thinks that the airplane theory, as far as her father, didn't happen. She thinks maybe he was disposed of there in New Orleans, um, th- there somewhere. And there's, you know, that could have happened as well. Because the New Orleans police had had that sort of theory, too, that that was possible. And so that may have been the case. When Buck said that, they may have been because he had previous knowledge of what already had occurred in New Orleans. Do you know what I mean? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So that... This is odd. Yeah, it is. It's a, it is. It's a strange story. But, well, I don't, it's late, and I don't want to keep you. I just thought if there was anything. Oh, I'm no ways near ready. Oh. <laughs> I know. I'm always up late, too. I, I'm a, um, a early. Well, thanks uh, to this phone call, I'm going to be awake <laughs> a lot longer. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hate to, I, I'm, I feel like such the bearer of bad news or, or bad memories, but well, I, you know. Yeah. It, it, it fits in with. 2020. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? This year (laughs) is just gets worse and worse. And, you know, here's what I tell. I do this a lot because I talk to family members of victims and then I talk to people associated with them to help get the story. And what I tell them is your relationship with your parent or whatever the uh, relationship is, is separate and apart from all this. And you, that's okay. You get to have that relationship because that's what you had with your father. That Mm -hmm. doesn't have anything to do with Steve Snedeker. Your relationship with your father is not diminished or changed in any way because of his relationship with someone else. And, and well, just this makes my dad somebody I didn't know. 
But you know what? I didn't really know. As I get older, I, I and I maybe it's just because I'm doing all these this research on these cases. I don't know that we know anybody really, you know. And I think that, you know, maybe one day my kids will hear something about me and think, "Wow, I didn't know that." You know what I mean? It just makes yeah. you you just don't. You know, and that's why you don't really know everything that any other person's thinking or doing. And everybody has ways of compartmentalizing um, parts of their lives and keeping them separate. And especially in a situation when you're involved with someone like Steve Snedeker, you probably, uh, you know, that's why it surprised me that he brought Steve over to your house to visit. Because I would be wanting to keep my kids away away from Steve Snedeker. But, uh-huh. you know, <clears throat> but in the, at that point, maybe he just, he didn't. Dad he, carried a gun all the time. Did he? Had started carrying a gun, yeah. When did he start carrying a gun? When he got with Steve. Really? Well, you did say his personality was like he he was attracted to that the bad boy part of the thing. Yeah, you know. living on the edge. Yeah. <laughs> so he may have hitched his hitched his cart to to that horse and you know went along but for the was, ride. In his family, he had um, six brothers and sisters. And all the kids that were, all of his nieces and nephews adored Dad. They adored him. He was tenderhearted. He would cry at Alassie's shows, same as I did. <laughs> Aw. Well, see, I mean, you know, that's like I said, his relationship with you guys was was different than, you know, we all get different things from different people in our lives. Your relationship uh. with him is different and has nothing to do with what, you know, what he may or may have not been, you know, involved with as far as Stephen. All I really know and what I've heard is that he was his, you know, best friend. He would have known. A sidekick. Yes, and may have known a lot of stuff. That doesn't mean he did anything. It just means he may have known a lot of what Steve was up to. Well, you know, he was in on some of it. I, I, I wouldn't. I, I mean, that's just. Yeah, and I wouldn't... Common sense. Right, and I wouldn't doubt that it was the business stuff as far as oil. I mean, obviously, if they can make a little money here and there by, you know, doing some shady stuff and making uh-huh. extra money, that that wouldn't surprise me in the least. When we're talking about murder, though, I'm not going to assume anybody's part of murder, and you know, unless I have some sort of evidence to that effect. Well, you know. I don't know if this helps, but Dad could never go hunting because he couldn't kill an animal. No, there you go. He might be able to kill a person. He was in uh, the Korean War. Hmm. He had some demons, I guess. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you telling me as much as you knew. It's uh, you know, it's always I'm always grateful when I I'm, I you know ring up a stranger and they're willing to at least tell me share with me what they knew know and it every little bit helps you know. It it does right. you know help it it kind of does shine a little light on something as far as Buck thinking, that you know about Trudy and and sort of uh-huh. you know what he thought about what happened but with Trudy. Everybody you're looking for is dead. Most of them are. You're right. Yep, yep. And and I'm getting. So how can you solve a murder when everybody's dead? Well, here's the thing with this. In this case, I, I don't solve murders. What I do is I go back and reinvestigate cases to see if I think that the conclusions that the police might have come to are, um, you know, this the same. Because basically what the investigator, John Munden, believed is that <clears throat> first Laura goes missing and then um, they find her body and he believes that Trudy Snedeker killed her daughter. He believes... Who, who believes that? John Munden, the, the detective. Oh, now that's an angle, but I don't think Dad... 
he never had thought of. He never thought that Trudy was the one that did anything to... If he did, he never said it to me. And I think that that may be because that wasn't necessarily a conclusion that uh, the detective came to until a few years. Because what happened is, after she she was murdered, they found her about month, eight months after she went missing from the house, um, St- Steve's business associates started disappearing. Like, one, you know, three of them at least. And so... Until Steve came to the conclusion Trudy killed her. Correct. That's exactly what happened. That and is then, so... Yep. Yeah. crazy it is crazy and so it took him a while to put it together because if you just put yourself in the detective's perspective first he's trying to investigate this girl going missing and then her body being found and then he's got all these other people going missing and he's following all those leads and ha- trying to figure it all out and in the end all those other things were probably just distractions from what really happened and you know it makes you wonder why would Trudy kill her daughter? Yeah, that's the question right there. That's the part of this whole thing that I... Okay, when they exhumed her, or what did the autopsy say? Well, <clears throat> how did she die? I'm still waiting for the documents, but I've heard from people who were close to the investigation at the time tell me that initially when they found her body, they found multiple shots in her head. So they thought, oh, she was killed right there in the cornfield where she was found. One of the Snedeker family members that I talked to, an ex of one of the kids, said his theory and, and John Munden's theory, the detective's theory, was that they got in an argument that night. Laura was trying to get away from her parents. She didn't want to move to Florida with them. She didn't. She was packing up her stuff to leave. She wanted to go back with her ex-husband. They didn't want her to do that. They wanted to control her and get her to come with them to Florida. And the theory Munden finally came to was that there was an argument that night. And so that's what I've. That's the main part of it that I've got to really look into because I can. I can put together that Steve did what he did if he thought. His business. I mean, everything he did makes sense. The a mother killing her daughter. I really have to look into a little real close before I'm going to buy into that. You know. Wow. That part's hard for me. And how did Trudy then get Laura in a car and dump her in a cornfield? Well, there's a theory that Munden had, and see, all these things came slowly with the investigation. But the theory was that um, Trudy called her father, and her father may have him and someone else they know that the father came into town overnight and didn't see anybody made this sort of overnight trip so something was going on there but i don't know if they have any proof that shows that you know that trudy called him you know if there are phone records or how how that happened because you're right trudy didn't take her to a cornfield and dump her you know i i can't picture that happening so you know they're thinking that she called her father and had some help but that would mean he had to fly in you know, within the and Duffy's granddaughter. Yes, exactly. That's sick. So it all just seems so. You know, are that many people involved in this? That you know, despicable. It's just hard to process, and that's why I wanted to sort of help um, her daughter because she wants the answers too. They never told her anything growing up. What happened to her mother? And all she heard was stories, and you know, half of it's lies. So. That's what I'm hoping to get the documents Bless her from. little heart. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a mess. Their family's a mess. I got to tell you. Crazy. Anyway, it is. It's crazy. But well, so are you gonna keep me up on this? Would you like me to? I've got your um, information and number now. So if you want me to update you, absolutely. Yeah, and then when the podcast comes out, you can listen to the whole saga because there's going to be multiple episodes on it, and it's all free. You can. Do you have an iPhone or a um a 
phone that you t- use regularly? I have an iPhone and I have an iPad and I have a computer. Well, what I'll do is when we get to that point, and it won't be for months now because I'll be researching for a while. When we get to that point that the podcast is ready, I will um, send you a little message and tell you how to how to get it all loaded up and how you can listen. I would appreciate that. Of course. I wouldn't have a clue. I, of course, I do this a lot. As you can imagine, with decades-old cases, I'm always contacting people who have never heard of what podcasts are, so I get to yeah, explain well, to them. Yeah, we're old people, you know, <laughs> it's past us by. During a subsequent text conversation, Marcia told me that she recalled an incident that occurred on that second visit to her house. Buck had brought Steve, and she said, quote, There were two men that must have followed them to my house. They were bad-looking men. I had three small children. They went very slowly past my house, then pulled into my driveway and sat for a few minutes, and then backed out and left. She puts this event occurring around 1981 or 82, which is around when Laura went missing, based on her age and the ages of her children at the time. She told her father to never bring Steve Snedeker there again. When she spoke to her sister after we talked, she said that her sister remembers their father Buck being afraid of dying and surrounding himself with guns. Now, I heard a similar story about strange men showing up at Laura's sister Brenda's house. We had just moved into a house that we had built uh, in Greenwood, and our yard wasn't even done yet. We had our fence up, but we had this little dog, and I think I told you this story once. Brenda's on the phone with her mom, and three guys in business suits walk out of the woods and walk up to the back corner of our fence and start messing with our dog. And she told Brenda, she said, hey, look, I know who that is and uh, you need to you need to uh, call Danny and then I think you guys really just need to move back. I think you guys just need to move down here to Florida. And we did. So she was insinuating that was who, do you think? And it might have been 83. It was before my last daughter was born. I know that. She was born in 84, so. And so who do you think that Trudy was insinuating those people were? Whoever it was, they thought, might have done something to Laura, I guess. Either that or somebody, they just knew who it was because of the way Brenda described them as somebody they had done business with. I don't know. I don't know. Did you at the time get the impression that, that it was real or that Trudy was saying that to um, intimidate you guys to get you to move? Well, of course, we, we fought both ways right at the beginning. But so you just really never did know. On, as time went on, you know, yeah, that's pretty much determined. That's, they, she knew who was there. <laughs> and it could have been because FBI. <clears throat> Because, been. you know, because they were following Snedeker at some point, too. Yep. So that's kind of basically the... Off for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and you think that was the turning point when you guys left and you ended up in Florida? That, that was the start of it. Whether these were members of law enforcement, possibly FBI, or local law enforcement investigating Laura's disappearance, or shady business associates of Steve's that he maybe had pissed off, well, that is unknown. As for Tony Lambert, an Orlando Sentinel article dated March 27, 1994, titled A Family's Legacy, Power, Greed, Death, written by Lauren Ritchie, 
summarized what Detective Sergeant John Munden believed had occurred. Quote, Steve hatched a scheme three weeks after Lore vanished to invite Lambert to an out-of-town business meeting and work on him. The idea was for Steve to fly his plane to New Orleans, lure Lambert there on the pretext of making him manager of a new waste oil business, then twist his arm for the truth about his involvement in Laura's death. The article went on to quote Detective Sergeant Munden. I said, why don't you just talk to him in Caramel, Indiana? It's only 20 minutes away. His rationale was, if I can get him out of town, I can get my answers. I didn't see Steve for two or three days, but nobody saw Tony, ever, after that. There's one thing I want to mention that may or may not be related. Laura went missing on August 10th or 11th, we're not exactly sure, probably the 11th in the wee hours. Eight days later, Tony Lambert's T-top was stolen from his 81 Corvette. And that happened again five days later, both times stolen from the same vehicle, which was parked in front of his residence. Both times the car was locked and the security alarm was set. The perpetrator or perpetrators had cut the battery wires, which were accessible under the wheel well, in order to disable the security alarm. Now that very well could have been a coincidence, but like police, I'm generally skeptical of coincidences, particularly when, in this case, I know Steve Snedeker was only 20 minutes away from Caramel when these incidents occurred, as evidenced by John Munden's quote to the newspaper. Steve was a busy beaver in that week or two after his daughter went missing, and he sure wasn't hanging around the house awaiting his daughter's return. He was busy paying off Hancock County Sheriff's Department with a bag of cash so he could order them around like his personal security team. He was busy commiserating with Detective Sergeant John Munden about how he was going to head out of state and shake down a guy he admittedly thought had something to do with his daughter going missing. And let's talk about that for a minute, because that will be a recurring theme in this story. I'm not sure I understand why John Munden didn't immediately order Snedeker to stay away from a witness. That's technically witness tampering, and I can't imagine any of the law enforcement officers that I have ever interviewed admitting that they had an encounter like that, never mind not making every effort to stop it. That meeting with Tony Lambert was a recipe for disaster. But this theme of John Munden commiserating with the Snedegers just before someone goes missing will occur again, not once but twice, and not just with Steve. Gertrude Snedeger will also get into the act, sniffing around John Munden to get information that she wanted, or maybe Steve wanted, and then someone else will go missing. We'll get there, listener. We will get there. But patience is a virtue, and there are some stops along the way that we have to make first if we're going to stick with the chronology of occurrences in this case, which I feel obligated to do because there is so much going on, the best way to tackle it is in the order in which everything happened. So while Steve Snedeker was busy in New Orleans, allegedly getting rid of Tony Lambert with no concrete leads or a motive or even a body, John Munden was up to his ass in psychics. And during the debrief interview he did with Indiana State Police that you will Later here in an upcoming episode, we'll see that he was taking their thoughts and psychic impressions well into account. In fact, he would, in his own words, later use them to formulate his theory. 
Dave Scott was a reporter for the Greenfield Daily Reporter, and you're going to hear from him in another episode as well. But on September 8th, 1981, he wrote this. Hancock County Sheriff's Department investigators enlisted the aid of two Midwest psychics during their holiday weekend in their continuing search for 22-year-old Laura Morris. Greta Alexander, an Illinois woman, and Ross Peterson of Garden, Michigan, who steered police to Wayne Williams, a suspect in the Atlanta child slayings, were each in Hancock County and advised police. But so far, to no avail. Although the missing girl has not been found, Peterson led authorities to an abandoned barn about three miles southwest of Greenfield, where some stolen property was found. Detective Sergeant John Munden and Sheriff Malcolm Grass went to Michigan last week and spoke with Peterson, where he circled an area on a Hancock County map that included the barn where the stolen property was discovered. Based on Peterson's lead, Munden found the stolen property Wednesday and later determined it to be part of items reported stolen in a residential burglary the night before Laura Morris disappeared. The burglary netted several thousand dollars. Munden believes those responsible sorted the items, keeping what was most valuable, and dumping the rest at the barn. Peterson, the psychic, said Monday morning he believed Laura left her parents' house voluntarily but ran into trouble later, and that he was not very hopeful that she would be found alive and well. Peterson also told Munden that he believes Morris has been moved, possibly more than once. Munden took Peterson to the abandoned barn, and inside they discovered a section of lower loft where blankets and what looked like a sleeping bag were found. Beer containers and pages from sexually explicit magazines were found nearby. Peterson had strong feelings that the missing woman had frequented the site, but could not say whether it was before or after her disappearance. After returning to the sheriff's office, the psychic isolated himself, and with a county map and a pendulum made from a pencil, string, and Laura Morris's car keys, he then tried to pinpoint the spot where the missing woman might be found. Armed with additional psychic impressions, Peterson emerged from the sequestered room and announced that he was ready for the search. So they would leave no stone unturned, Munden, Grass, and other investigators accompanied Peterson through various parts of southeastern Hancock County and to one site in particular where psychic Greta Alexander had also brought police on Sunday. The location each psychic indicated was a large farmhouse with a barn, a well, and a glazed tile silo hidden from view by thick vegetation that appeared to be an orchard. Munden said his department has received reports of parties and loud music at that house. A makeshift bandstand and an empty aluminum beer keg were found west and south of the home. Peterson, a tall, thin, amiable man, was becoming visibly fatigued as evening approached and he told officers he feared he was not going to be able to help them, but that he had a mental image of a person involved in Morris's disappearance. Police artists were contacted to work with the psychic on developing a composite sketch of the man. A canine team combed the southeastern county areas today as the vigil continues.
Now, you will hear a bit more about all of that from John Munden himself in his debrief with Indiana State Police. I've got about 50 pages where he had a long conversation with them later on in the investigation to help the Indiana State Police catch up on what he remembered from his time doing that investigation. Greta Alexander, I think, was one, and Ross Peterson was another. But the first psychic that got involved was this young black man from Indianapolis. Okay? And I'm sitting in John's office one day, and he's talking to this guy on the phone. And he, he proceeds to tell John about somebody that's sitting across his desk from him who's got his legs crossed and smoking a cigarette. That's exactly what I was doing. So that was a little bit spooky. He was on the phone talking to him? Yes. Oh. Yeah, that was a little weird. So John thought, okay, well, maybe this is the cops. So he invited him to come out. Well, he did. And he took took, uh, John to this uh, abandoned barn, okay? Not too far from, from the senator home. And he said, she's been here. And, well, John walks into this barn, and there's no more there. And then as John's leaving the barn, he steps in a hole out in the ground. This is dark, okay? And in the bottom of this hole he stepped in, he pulls out a handful of jewelry that was stolen from the house just like a week or two prior. Stolen from what house? Uh, somebody that lives in Hancock County. Okay. I don't, I don't know what house. Okay. It wasn't the Sedeker household. Okay. But he, he found stuff that had been reported stolen. <laughs> huh. So that was weird. Made the hair stand up. Yeah. I was re- going through more articles today, and um, one of them uh, about the psychic specifically said that um, one of the theories by one of the, th- the psychics is this theory that Munden was going with. Do you know what theory they were talking about? Uh, the one that she was moved more than once. When the psychics were talking about that she had been moved more than once, were they saying a, her as a dead body was moved more than once? Yeah. Okay. Stay tuned.